You probably won't be surprised to know that I spend quite a bit of time reading the Bible, studying the Bible, having a lot of conversations about the Bible. When you spend this much time in the biblical text, it brings a certain um, quality to your life. And you've probably experienced the same type of quality. When you think about what this Bible is, what this text is, it is an ancient, ancient text full of wisdom. This book, this library of book, contains stories that span 2,000 years. It was completed 2,000 years ago, which means that the setting for some of these stories was 4,000 years ago. This text was written in about three different languages with influences from several other languages. And it's been translated by scores of people. In English alone, we have 500 or more different translations of the Bible. And so when we pick up this ancient and sometimes alien text, we can't help but wonder. This quality that I experience, this, this thing that I experience when I pick up this book is, of course, confusion. We can't help but wonder sometimes what on earth is it that we are reading. There's stories in this book that are crazy. There's a story of one prophet that calls down a couple of she-bears to maul 42 youths. There are stories of talking donkeys in this book. There's a story about a woman that saves her husband's life with a foreskin. It's okay to be baffled when you pick up this book. And the audience that Jesus is addressing shares the experience. It says of this group of Pharisees, Jesus used this figure of speech with them, and they do not understand what it is he's saying. Jesus, the incarnate word, speaks a word, and all the people said, what? I think we can sympathize. Jesus does use an odd assortment of metaphors and images in this passage. He speaks of sheepfolds and sheep, gates and a gatekeeper, shepherds, thieves and bandits, and those that would come to steal, kill, and destroy. And then he goes on to identify himself with two of these images that he's used. He says, I am the gate for the sheep. And then he says, I am the good shepherd that takes the sheep in and out of the gates. There's a scene in one of my favorite movies from my youth that came to mind when I read this passage. In this movie, there's a bartender who's addressing his patrons and telling his patrons to keep a certain secret. And the bartender says to them, those in glass houses sink ships. The audience, hearing this mixed metaphor, says a penny in hand is worth two in the bush, right? Bonus points for anybody that can identify that movie after the service. I feel like if Jesus had started with one metaphor, and probably the one that I'm more comfortable with, this would be a lot easier to understand. If Jesus would have said, I am the good shepherd, and left it at that, I wouldn't be so baffled by this passage. This is, though, a metaphor, at least the shepherd one, that we're at least familiar with. Most of us are far removed from the business of actual shepherding, but we know this metaphor. 
It's an ancient metaphor. Far before the people of Israel used it, the people of Mesopotamia and Egypt and Babylon used the shepherd as a metaphor for their kings and for their rulers. The metaphor fits. The job of the shepherd is to ensure not just the survival, but the flourishing and the thriving of their flock. The shepherd must lead the flock to sustenance, must protect this flock and ensure that none of the members of this flock are lost. This is exactly the calling of a good ruler. A good ruler seeks the health and the wellness and the shalom of their people. The people of Israel carried on this tradition of naming their rulers as shepherds. The prophet Samuel anoints David as he comes in from the flocks. But what do we make of the gate statement? I mean, we easily understand that gates are for moving in and out. They're usually meant to protect something, in this case, a flock of sheep. And this week, as I've read this passage, I felt like I was reaching for something, like there was something that I wasn't quite, quite grasping. Fortunately, this week, I had one of those conversations in which I was rather confused by the Bible. This conversation revolved around a verse that we find Jesus saying in his Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, Enter through the narrow gates, for the gate is wide and the road is easy that leads to destruction. There are many who take it. For the gate is narrow and the road is hard that leads to life, and there are few who find it. When this conversation started on Wednesday, I wasn't really thinking about this passage in John 10. My mind instead just went to city gates in the ancient world. These gates in the ancient world were places of much more activity than we might imagine. City gates, of course, are the place where people come in and out of the city, but there's more going on. There's often commerce at the city gates. Outside or inside the city gate is where the shepherds and the farmers bring their produce to share with the people of the city. City gates in the ancient world were also places of governance. Those tasked with the maintenance of the city, a kind of ancient city council met in the city gates. This was also the place where civil judgments were made. You might remember that in the story of Ruth, Boaz goes to the city gate to make his legal agreement with his cousin. Gates were also a symbol of hope in this ancient world. They were the actual place of protection. If you were a farmer or a shepherd in ancient Israel and the Assyrian army started coming through your valley, you fled to the city gates hoping that they would still be open. And once inside, if those gates were well defended, then the enemy army was left with nothing but siege or to go over the walls to steal and kill and destroy. Because these gates were so important, economically and politically and defensively, the gate became a symbol. To enter through a city gate meant that you would submit, that you would pledge allegiance to the authority of that city. 
In the Roman Empire, that often meant that to walk through a city gate was to pledge allegiance to an emperor who claimed divinity, to pledge allegiance to the gods of that empire. In those places, the gates were indeed wide. But what of this narrow gate, this gate that leads to life? This history lesson on city gates may help us understand the claim that Jesus is making, but I think there's one more key to help us understand what's going on in this passage. And the key is who this audience is and what they have done just before this passage. This passage is part of a a larger story. It's part of a final act of a story that began in the previous chapter in John chapter 9. And I know it was a long time ago, but six weeks ago, we did talk about John 9. You may remember that in that story, Jesus and the disciples encounter a man that was born blind. The disciples asked who sinned to cause this man to be born blind, and Jesus' response was shocking. Shocking to them and also shocking to us today. Jesus explains that not every malady in the world is the result of of sin. However, Jesus also says that every malady is an opportunity to witness the glory of God at work in healing and restoration. Jesus' response reminds us that sometimes we get caught up in finding someone to blame for the chaos that we witness in our world when we could be finding ways to partner with the Spirit to cultivate abundant life. When Jesus encounters this man, he simply heals the man. The rest of chapter 9 tells of those that are actually able to witness the life that has been restored and those that cannot. This group of Pharisees interrogates the man and everyone around. They seek to discredit the man and his experience. They seek to discredit Jesus. They seek to discredit anybody that witnessed this event. And in the end, this group of Pharisees play the gatekeeper. They throw this man out of their community, out of the city gates. It is this group of Pharisees who are blind to the glory and the presence of God, while this man that was born blind heard the voice of the good shepherd. He listened to it and witnessed the very presence of the divine It is these Pharisees, these Pharisees that Jesus is addressing in this passage. It is those that presume to have authority in the matters of the divine, those that claim to be the shepherds of Israel, those that should be ushering people into the fold but instead are throwing them out. This is a passage of rebuke. Unfortunately, when this passage is read by itself without the context, it might sound a little bit like its own gatekeeping. But Jesus here is not the gatekeeper. Jesus is the gate. Jesus is the shepherd that guides the flock into the gate for protection and out of the gate for sustenance. About 600 years 600 years before Jesus' life, one of Israel's prophets made a similar reproach of the rulers and the religious leaders of Jerusalem. 
According to Ezekiel, God criticized the gates of Jerusalem. God cast down the gates of the Temple Mount, saying that those that have been appointed to execute judgment are exercising this judgment by exploiting their sheep. Ezekiel goes on to criticize the shepherds. He says, The word of the Lord came to me, prophecy against the shepherds of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, Woe, you shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fatted calves, but you do not feed the sheep. You've not strengthened the weak, you've not healed the sick, you've not bound up the injured, you've not brought back the strays, you've not sought the lost, but with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered. They had no shepherd and they were scattered and they became food for wild animals. Thus says the Lord God, I am against the shepherds. If the role of the shepherd is to ensure the thriving of a flock of sheep, we can see that that was clearly not happening. God responds with this promise. I myself will shepherd these sheep. I will make them lie down, says the Lord God. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strays and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak and I will feed them. I will feed them with justice, says the Lord. When Jesus speaks, he calls these passages from Ezekiel to mind. He takes this audience to task for the way that they've been treating their flock, for the way that they've treated this very man. But Jesus is also saying more. Jesus is claiming this divine vocation of the good shepherd that was promised so many centuries before. This morning, we've celebrated God as our shepherd through the words of the 23rd Psalm and the lyrics of these songs that we've chosen the psalm is, of course, one of the well, most well-recognized verses from our Bible. It's a psalm of praise and thanksgiving, and it is a psalm of promise and a psalm of hope. It's a psalm that gives us the expectation that no matter what we may face, the Good Shepherd is there to protect and to provide and to welcome. And despite the imagery that we might think of when we hear these words... This is actually a song that comes from a desert experience. Despite what we may imagine when we hear these words, this poem was born in an inhospitable environment of threat and danger. In Israel, shepherds took their flock, flocks to places where they wouldn't disturb the crops. And this tended to mean the desert. When we start to think about this psalm, with the desert in mind, the imagery changes. There are not often green pastures and fields in a desert. There's no serene lake sitting beside the shade of a grove of trees. This psalm is about painful and difficult places. Even amid pain and difficulty, though, this psalm tells us that the good shepherd will ensure that we have all we need. 
The green pastures of the desert landscape are small tufts of succulents. The shepherd guides the flock one step at a time, step after step, to a new succulent, to new sustenance. The still waters of the desert are cisterns that have been carefully carved over generations to provide water. The rod and the staff comfort the sheep because the shepherd uses them to protect them. And the psalm finishes with an image of desert hospitality because in the desert, hospitality is a matter of life and death. If you are a desert-dwelling people, even when your enemy shows up on your doorstep, you take them in because you know next time it might be you. When your enemy comes in, you welcome them. You pour them wine, you give them bread, you soothe their skin with oil, and you celebrate abundant life. Saying that the shepherd provides a table in the presence of enemies is a statement about the very, very wide bounds of the grace of this shepherd. If Jesus is the gate and if Jesus is the good shepherd, then the whole flock can expect to have exactly what Jesus has come to bring, abundant life. But even hearing that is confusing for some of us. What does abundant life look like even in the midst of pain and difficulty? How do we recognize the voice of a good shepherd that calls us even in these places? One of the ways that I've learned to hear and to recognize this voice is through the stories of healing and the stories of presence that I've received from you and that I tell from my own life. This week, I had a meeting with our SPRC, which is the Staff Pastor Parish Relations Committee. It's part of our Board of Stewards that you can come meet on May 11th. But in this meeting with our SPRC, I was asked to tell them about how I've come to be here, how I've heard the voice of God calling me to ministry. It's been a while since I had thought about and told parts of those stories. But in telling that story again, a few things happened. First, I was, res I was reminded. I was reminded of the ways that the Good Shepherd has spoken to me in the past. I was reminded of the ways that step by step by step through my own desert experiences, the Good Shepherd was there, leading me to sustenance. The second thing that happened in telling that story was that those that heard it heard the voice of the shepherd in new ways. They were also reminded of that voice in their own lives. That voice. Jesus says, I am the gate. And I am the good shepherd. We, we are called to enter that gate. We're called to submit ourselves to one whose authority is expressed in love and grace. We're called to follow this good shepherd in and out as he leads us to life. And as the body of Christ here today, we are not called to gatekeeping. 
We're called to welcoming, to protecting, to sustaining, and to celebrating life. We're called to partner in ensuring that this flock thrives. May we hear this voice and this call today. In the name of the Good Shepherd, and the gate for the sheep, and the spirit of abundant life. Amen.